I think that's really it, though, about the, that the essence of wisdom is recognizing that uh, really how things are in this world and really seeing that, seeing that not only uh, is life inevitably challenging for everyone, but that people are innately heroic. We want more of it. And innately kind, when we're not confused with kind, that's a very amazing piece of uh, the new word now all over the place in, in Buddhism and everything else is neurobiology. But the most amazing piece of neurobiology is the fact that we seem to be wired for kindness and compassion. So where to start? I've been gone for a while and I spent a lot of time thinking about how did I want to start today? What would be the right way to start after a period of time away? Uh, do you start with a topic or a topic? Wanted to, I, and I've said so many times, I only think there's one topic. There's one topic. Is what are we doing here? And why are we doing it? And what really matters? Every week I might say that I, every week in fact, I do make another name for whatever it is that I say. But the truth is, it's always exactly the same thing, shuffled around with new stories. I mean, that's all right, because there's only one thing to say. Peace is possible in our lifetime. It's a, it, it has to come about through peace of individual minds, which will make peace in communities and peace in countries, peace in families, peace in communities, peace in countries, peace between countries, and peace in the world. That's how it works. I was very excited, uh, I'm sure we all were, uh, watching the news over the last several months with all people movements, uh, uh, particularly across North Africa and the Middle East, people coming out and saying, it's not working that other way. We have to have a new way. And the new way is human rights and dignity and individual freedom. The new way is working together. I wish I had, uh, well, it's my, it's my purse, I do have it. Uh, the, the image of, here, yeah, where's the image? The image of people all over the world with a, with a piece of plastic in their hand. <laughs> but spreading the word, uh, you know, we'll meet you in this square, we'll meet you in that square, don't give up. We can do it. We can really triumph. We can liberate ourselves. The fundamental Buddha's promise of the Buddha is we could liberate ourselves from suffering. And he, of course, is saying we could liberate ourselves from the suffering of uh, uh, mind states that contribute to suffering, from the habits of mind that keep us stuck in suffering states. But we could liberate ourselves as well as a whole entire planet, as a species, from all kinds of oppressed states if we did it together as friends. And uh, I've been thinking so much about uh, how excited I am to be part of Spirit Rock, part of a community, part of a tradition that's, whose fundamental message is that peace is possible. You know, we used to have years ago, maybe during the time of uh, Vietnam, I, we had all had bumper stickers that said, peace is possible. I saw one of my, uh, I was visiting my daughter yesterday, I saw that on her refrigerator, 
She had a lovely bumper sticker, well, not a bumper sticker, but a sticker sticker on her refrigerator, and it said, inner peace is possible. And I thought, that's great, I love that. Then I saw in smaller letters it said, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. <laughs> I said, oh, I know that. <laughs> How good. But inner peace is possible, but that inner peace that's possible that we teach about here is really the pivotal point on which stands the outer peace in the world. It has to be based on inner peace to be able to make friends with ourselves and friends with our community and then friends with the people who have different views than we do. In, in families, people have different views. They get, they get into um, difficulty with each other and they say, let's sit down and talk. And they say, if they're lucky and if they're wise, they say, let's sit down and talk because we really want to preserve this relationship. What if the whole world sat down and said, let's sit down and talk? really want to preserve this world. I'm so excited about reading the statistics of the numbers of people in the world, the demographics, that in certain parts of the world are dramatically skewed in the direction of young people who have another 40 or 50 years to live, for whom an investment in clean air and clean water and a viable planet for themselves and their children has got to be enormous. And I imagine them all armed, so to speak, with a piece of plastic, like this piece of plastic, on which they can text each other and say, let's stop, everybody sit down, find a friend, talk to someone you thought that had a different view. Let's have a massive worldwide con conversation and do things differently. I, I, I remember when, uh, uh, in 1989, when the uh, Berlin Wall came down, reading one particular commentator that said the proximal cause of the fall of the wall was the fax machine. And I remember being stunned by that because this commentator said you could keep people ki from coming in, you could keep people from going out, you could keep books from being sent in and out, you could monitor information, but you couldn't monitor the telephone. And the fax machine depended on the telephone. And so groups of, I always get goose pimples when I say that, groups of people outside were able to keep faxing, keep the faith, keep the pressure, do this, do that. And if groups of people keep saying, keep the faith, we'll do it another way, everybody's courage stays up and things happen. And since that time, it stayed in my mind, the proximal cause of the fall of the wall was the fax machine. And now I look at this and I think the proximal cause of saving the earth is going to be people texting to each other and saying, I love you, let's save the world, peace is possible. It's that easy, you know. I, by the, parenthetically, I recently was teaching a day at uh, one of the high schools here in the county. So it was a, a, a religion awareness day, and I was the, uh, the Buddhist awareness teacher amongst other clergy going around. And so I was given a schedule of go to the gym, and at 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, three different groups of people will come through and uh, teach them about Buddhism. Well, teach them about Buddhism. You have 40 minutes to do something with them. So, first of all, in the gym, they're sitting on bleacher seats and uh, in a big gym with basketball hoops and um, it's, I, I had to find a chair for myself in front of them. It's not exactly conducive to the 
relax. <laughs> also, they're, uh, they're anywhere from uh, 14 to 18 years old, so you don't want to say anything weird about meditation. So I, I mostly talked about cultivating, uh, about being in touch with what nice people we are and what good hearts we have. So it's a kind of a... Uh, um, <coughs> circuitous way to come around to metta meditation, goodwill meditation. I said, suppose you met your friend, one of your friends coming, uh, arriving at school, and you knew they had a big test that day. What would you say to them? They'd say, oh, I hope you do well on the test. I hope you pass. That way. And suppose you meet them after school. You might say, oh, hi, let's spend some time together, or say whatever you'd say. So I said, so I, I had them do metta meditation. They said a whole bunch of things. All those expressions, goodwill expressions. So nothing as arcanely worded as "I bless you with passing the exam," but uh, that, that's already. But but to say, okay, now we're going to we're going to do a special contemplative exercise. Never mind meditation. So contemplative exercise. I said, but to do this exercise, you don't have to sit in a special way, but just sit because if you watch adolescents. They, they're leaning on each other. They're touching each other all the time. Nobody sits alone. They just, they're all crammed in. They lean on each other. They're touching each other. So just for the, for the, this three, four minutes, sit by yourself so you're not touching anybody. You don't say sit up, just sit by yourself. So everybody sits. I say, okay, so just so you won't laugh, you close your eyes and you won't feel silly. And then take three long breaths in and out. Hold it as long as you can. They like that because that's the thing. And then you say, um, imagine your best friend walking in through the door and uh, or walking down the street and you come around the corner and you see him. And think of something good to say to him. And then don't say it out loud, but say in your mind, you're a good thing to your friend. Like, I hope you do well on that test. Or I hope I see you after school. Or I hope your sister feels better. Or... Some sort of a hope like that. I thought to myself, and they loved it, by the way. The whole reason I'm telling you this story is to tell you that people love it when you tell them, look what a good person you are. You can wish good things for people, and it makes you feel good. But suppose everybody sat down with this secret weapon and said, hey, think 10 good thoughts for your friends, and send and text each of your 10 best friends a good wish for today. Imagine, because the point is it changes your own mind, puts your own mind in a loving mood. You're more ready to think. So I don't really think that it's texting I love you that maybe I really do think that texting I love you is going to make a difference. But texting peace is possible is going to make a difference. Texting we can make this a better world is going to make a difference. So I feel very excited about it. So I thought I'd tell you this. This, is a, this I, I feel good about. I felt proud of it, so I'm showing off a little bit. I got an, uh, uh, like I took it, I thought it was a kind of a little challenge this summer. Uh, one of the places that I teach at has a, has a website, not Spirit Rock, somewhere on the East Coast, has a website. And I'm going to teach a workshop for them later this fall. So they sent me a questionnaire and they said, um, would you answer these five questions, please? Because we're going to put it up on our website. We're doing this for each of the people who's teaching here this fall. So uh, we're advertising the courses. So the five questions they asked, here they are. Describe what you do 
in 15 words or less. <laughs> I thought the same, you know. Tell us about a turning point in your life. Also, you know, I assume not in 15 words, but maybe, you know. Three, what do you love about teaching? Four, what are you passionate about right now? And five, what do you do in your downtime? Mm. Mm. So, okay, I'm going to tell you again so you can think about your answer. You're answering that question, okay? What do you do in 15 words or less? What turning point? What tell us about a turning point in your life? Think, think, think. What do you love about what you do? What are you passionate about right now? What do you do in your downtime? This is what I wrote back to them. <clears throat> Fifteen words. I teach mindfulness and loving-kindness meditations, practices that cultivate a warm and cordial attitude towards oneself and others. Period. <laughs> Tell us about a turning point in your life. I participated in a meditation retreat in 1977 and was so moved by what I intuited was the possibility of a contented mind not dependent on outside circumstances that I became a practitioner and subsequently a teacher. Three, what do you love about teaching? I have been a teacher of something all of my adult life because I am most thrilled by sharing what seems valuable to me with others. And teaching others is the best way of deepening my own understanding. That's really true. You know, when we were sitting in that last five minutes this morning, I, the thought went through my mind. Because I think from time to time, I wonder how long I'll be doing this. You know, I'm getting older, my life circumstances might change. Maybe there'd be a time when I'm not teaching here on Wednesday mornings. And I thought to myself, the thing I would miss the most is hearing Dharma and being here for those five minutes because it's good for me to hear Dharma. I behave better when I hear it. Actually, I do. You know, you can't be saying this is the cause of happiness and let your mind run amok with old habits that aren't good for it. <laughs> so I need to hear Dharma. I just as well hear it for myself because I like what I say. <laughs> and I also really like to have a community that shares their heart because then I feel held up. I also feel reminded of how much turmoil and trouble there is in the world and how much I have to be grateful for on any day of my life. So I guess I'll be here for a while. What do you do in your downtime? I keep up my relationships with friends far and near whose sustaining presence in my life validates my belief that love is the source of happiness. I really like that. I love the 15 words or less. That's not for me. I'm very long-winded. But I did it. I did it. But the, the, what I want to talk about is what is it that we really teach here? That's what I really prepared to say. I mean, I love to teach mindfulness and loving kindness that, that clear the mind, allow wisdom to manifest, and the ma wisdom manifests as kindness. 
That's the most consoling, the most reassuring message I know, and I'm absolutely clear. I, I don't believe it's the truth. I trust it's the truth. I really think... I stopped using the word believe a long time ago because it's so fraught with... Because there are things I used to believe that I don't believe. But I trust, I really do trust that this path of... that wisdom is possible, peace is possible, forgiveness is possible, and manifesting a loving heart is possible. Up to the last minute in one's life, my life. You know, I was at the Garrison Institute last week. It was really... um, it was, it was lovely. I want to tell you about it. Garrison Institute's a, a, a conference center on the East Coast. And at this meeting were upwards of 200, I think 220 Dharma teachers. <coughs> Tibetan Buddhist teachers, Zen teachers, Theravada tradition teachers, friends of the Western Buddhist order, lineages of teachers, uh, With a few exceptions, they were all Westerners, although um, uh, the, the, the people who uh, live and teach in, 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 in India and Burma and, were invited. And uh, ten years ago, uh, more came when the, the last meeting was at Spirit Rock. For whatever reason, this is mostly Westerners. Well, Europeans were certainly there, and uh, mostly Westerners. Uh, people who had learned Buddhism as, uh, as as a second religion, so to speak. They're born into something else. But, it, you know, it's different now than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when we had the first of these meetings because there were so many of us and it wasn't anymore an oddity. In the beginning, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Buddhism was a strange little, or well, Western Buddhism, and Buddhism in the East has been a, as is a very very old religion. But twenty years ago, thirty years ago, it was a new thing amongst Westerners to be studying and practicing practices that came from, uh, that came from the East. Uh, now it doesn't seem new. Uh, it seems quite ordinary to have two hundred and twenty or so. And that was only the capacity of, of Garrison, that there were easily another 100 people that would have liked to be at that conference who couldn't come. So these were, these were people who are identified as teachers now in the community. Uh, if we had practitioners, it would be a really, it would be enormous. We don't have a space big enough. But, but uh, just teachers, and teachers talking about teaching and talking about their own practice. And it was tremendously interesting to me. One of the early day conversations that happened in circles, I was in a circle of uh, 20 or so people, was what is it that you fundamentally, this is as teachers, what is it that you fundamentally want people to understand when you're teaching? Not how are you teaching, what techniques do you teach, this way of breathing, that way of cultivating attention. But what do you hope people will learn? What do you think you're teaching? And what do you think you te- what do you require of the people that you are training to teach? Somebody said it's such a western line to say it. 
what's the bottom line? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do people have to know for you to recognize them as, okay, you can start teaching now? And what's the bottom line with yourself? What do you have to know? So there's a lot of, um, a lot of really sincere reflection and sharing uh, about where people, uh, what people believe as the potential of this practice. If I had to think about it now, backwards, and over the whole week, uh, it suddenly occurs to me that the conversation was much more about um, level of transformation uh, through the lens of integrity, that I've become a nicer person, I'm a kinder person, I'm more at ease in the world, and um, uh, my relationships are going well. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm condensing everybody into a few sentences. But I think that uh, I remember that 30 years ago, people talked about levels of realization that mostly had to do with what particular uh, depth of meditation practice they had been, uh, they had been able to develop or what particular um, insights about refined consciousness they'd been, they'd been privy to. It's not that people aren't interested in cultivating very steady and uh, concentrated mind states and studying consciousness. It seemed to me that the conversation was much less about any particular technical prowess as more as how, how much has your heart developed, which makes me feel very good. I really, you know, then somebody would say sour grapes, that's because you're not very developed the other way, that's why you think that. But I don't think that. I, th I think we're all, we've all done a lot of practice and people have had some very, very interesting kinds of mind states and experiences. And I think that the general sense that I get from listening to people is that it's not about a particular experience, having had it or not. It's about a particular transformation of heart and consciousness and a dedication to make a difference with that in the world. That seems to me such a, um, such a component part. So one of my friends yesterday, uh, having also been at the conference, we're talking about one thing or another, he said to me, since I'll, I'll say it to you, he posed the question. He said, uh, we talk about mindfulness and what's the definition of mindfulness? And he said, um, so think about a thief who's broken into the second story of a, of a house, jimmied the window open and gone in. Middle of the night, there are people sleeping in the bed. And this thief, who's familiar with the layout, come in to steal a jewelry box in the closet of this room and is walking extremely, extremely, extremely carefully to get over to where he or she is going, listening to every nuance of sound, moving slowly, attentive, taking the jewelry and leaving. Now think about a rock climber who's climbing a uh, half dome, okay, or climbing some very, very big rock, climbing, 
and placing every hand and every foot and every hand and every foot carefully, 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 uh, really testing the, testing the rope, aware of the wind, aware of the growing darkness around her. Now think about a, um, uh, a, uh, a surgeon doing a coronary bypass. Uh, really, really paying attention to what she or he is encountering as she or he goes along. Watching all the meters, listening to everything. Are they mindful? Paying attention, everybody, moment to moment, all faculties present, mm -hmm. no wandering thoughts. Who is mindful? All of them, all right. Who thinks all of them? Who thinks something else? What do you think? Awareness means needs to be part of mindfulness. And is there an awareness on the thief's part of what he's doing? Remind me of your name. Diane. Diane. So Diane says, awareness is a part of mindfulness. Is there awareness on the thief's part of what he or she is doing? So, you know, I... Just to keep the conversation going, uh, I could say they're they're aware they're aware of what they're doing. They're aware of what they're, they're, aware of what they're doing. What about the, <laughs> the meta doing the answers? What do you want to say, Barbara? Well, I'm just saying they're focused on this very narrow, narrow. They're not aware of anything but this one teeny, teeny sliver, and it seems that mindfulness is. Awareness of a bigger uh, thing, yeah, a bigger thing, broader. Of, it doesn't seem like they're mindful in the way we teach it here. Doesn't seem. Okay, so here we go, Naomi. What do you think? Um, <coughs> I think that um, they're all paying attention. But what's missing, what differentiates is intention. That uh -huh. what, why they are paying attention makes it mindful or not. I think that, okay, so everybody got that? They're, 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 why they are paying attention. So, yeah, go ahead. But we're judging what we think their intention is. Um, the thief's intention could be, I need this so I can provide for my family because my children don't have enough to eat my whatever, and the heart surges intentions could be, I need to do this bypass so I can buy a new yacht. Yeah. So we have to be very careful about putting our own thing on top of it and saying the thief is automatically bad, the heart surgeon is automatically good. That's not necessarily true. Remind me of your name. Helena. Helena. Yeah. So this ad, so, so so far we're adding it up, intention matters. Helena is adding that we don't know what, everybody's intention is. What were you going to say, Francine? Um, 
was thinking when I first moved to Sweden in 1971, I was aware of this uh, very idea of intention. I learned that if a thief comes into your home uh, to steal, but something happens to them, they fall down the steps or they s slip on the ice, the person <laughs> is responsible <laughs> for their uh, illness, for the injury. And, and that for me was uh, on a meta level. A very special feeling. Uh, that even if somebody is a thief in my home, I'm responsible for their well-being. That's that's another dimension for it. That's a really. That, 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 thank you very much. What else? What else? Yeah. I'm Mary. Yeah. Um, what's um, coming up for me is is back to what your description of filling out that application and the components that. Um, arise for me that are missing um, are integrity um, and heart and an intention of peace. Mm -hmm. um, that those somehow I'm not I'm not capturing from from those descriptions. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a sense, Mary, building on what Helene said, it has to do and what everybody else said before Barbara and Naomi as well, is that. Uh, intention is important. We don't know what their intention is. So and I, I, I was very glad for that as well because uh, let's just stop for a minute there. Uh, why do you think in that there's a difference between the three people, right, in terms of what seems to be uh, levels of morality, what appears. We, didn't, we, we could discuss if we actually know, but there seem to be three levels of morality, like a, uh, immoral, amoral, and uh, moral in terms of giving, you know, devoting oneself to saving someone's life. But we don't actually know what the inner experience is of uh, intention. Ideally, uh, I think we want to think of mindfulness as a broad beam of light that includes ethics. But maybe reality, I mean, it, the, the total concentration is, is vital to practice, but it also is vital to unethical behavior. Well, somebody a long time ago, indeed, someone a long time ago said, was using mindfulness to describe someone who went to a gambling casino who was extremely good at card counting and could therefore go to a poker table and by some discernment that I don't exactly get, play in such a way as to be beating the odds. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's maybe two... What were we going to say, Lynn? Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. no I, was, I was thinking that, that mindfulness was being aware that every single thing is interconnected and that every and so that no action is unrelated to the other which includes the whole gamut of of uh, ethics and of mm -hmm. awareness of causes and conditions and mm -hmm. consequences see I, I i think that we've come around to that in a very very good way you probably remember that there's a, uh, a teaching of the Buddha 
to the, the uh, teachings of the Buddha to his son Rahula. His son Rahula, who uh, you remember that the Buddha was married and had a child and left the wife and the child and went off and uh, became a renunciate and founded his own order years later. And years later, his wife and his son Rahula joined the order, according to the story. And according to the story, there's a teaching in which he uh, teaches his son Rahula, and he says this. He said, before doing anything, Rahula, one should reflect thus. Is what I'm about to do for my well-being and for the benefit of others? If it is, you can continue. If in the middle of doing an action, in the middle of doing an action, you should think to yourself, is what I am now doing for my well-being as well as for the benefit of others? And after you've done something, you should reflect, is what I just did for my own well-being and for the benefit of others? And if at any point before you could stop, in the middle you could stop, and afterwards you could make amends, you find if it were not for the benefit of all beings. So Helene's point is, what if, is Jean Valjean, you know, that uh, uh, what if you're stealing to feed your family? So... That we could have a, a really a, 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 but in the meantime, it belongs to these people's stuff. That's a, it's a central kind of ethical question. Uh, can are ethics something that really we, you know, can use some sort of discriminating awareness, or is there an ethic? But I think, generally speaking, the the it, the, the the sense that I take away is very best captured in, and which completes the, the definition of mindfulness for me, is very much captured in uh, the teachings of Nyanapanika, who, uh, a very learned and respected Theravada writer and teacher and monk, died in the 1990s. And he, in his book where he uh, uh, explains about uh, the... Uh, the path of mindfulness. Uh, it's called the heart of Buddhist meditation. He talks about the the mindfulness, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, and when he, the mindfulness of the body and of uh, feelings and of the mind and of uh, understandings of things. And then the very next follow up chapter is called clear comprehension of purpose. That when the mind is really balanced and clear, it tells you what to do next. It really that that in a moment of mindfulness, there's enough energy left to make the next move. That every moment of mindfulness contains in it enough energy to direct the next moment. There's a moment. There's a uh, there's a lovely description earlier on. And David Brooks here, yeah, let's see if I can find it. Talking about character building. So it sounds like it might be off the topic, but it isn't. It talks about uh, how is it that when you give information to some people, um, they don't use it. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> the research is clear. <laughs> this is out of school, this is school. The research is clear. Information programs are not very effective in changing behavior. 
For example, a 2001 survey of over 300 sex education programs found that, in general, these programs had no effect on sexual behavior or contraceptive use. <laughs> Classroom teaching or seminar consciousness raising has little direct effect on unconscious impulses. Sermons don't help either. The evidence suggests reason and will are like muscles, and not particularly powerful muscles either. In some cases, you might think about recent developments in politics. You think some very strange things happen from, from very competent people with a great deal of talent that they could offer to the community who get suddenly an impulse to do something very untimely <laughs> and <Stupid>. ill-advised. <laughs> Stupid nails. <laughs> And, you know, wreck their families, wreck their careers, you think. And these are probably people who did extremely well in school. And uh, reason and will are like muscles and not particularly powerful ones. In some cases, and in the right circumstances, they can resist temptation and control the impulses, but in many cases, simply too weak to impose self-discipline by themselves. In many cases, self-delusion takes control. In the, the 19th and 20th century, character-building models were limited because they shared one assumption that step one in the decision-making process, the art of per, the act of perception, is a relatively simple matter of taking in a scene. The real action involved the calculation about what to do and the necessary willpower to actually do it. But should, it should be clear by now that that's wrong. The first step is actually the most important one, Perceiving isn't just a transparent way of taking it in. It is a thinking and skilling, skillful process. Seeing and evaluating are not two separate processes. They are linked and basically simultaneous. Before doing anything, Rahula, think about whether what you're about to do is for your benefit and for the benefit of all beings. Seeing and evaluating happen together. The research of the last 30 years suggests that some people have taught themselves to perceive more skillfully than others. The person with good character has taught herself or has been taught by those around her to see situations in the right way. When she sees something in the right way, she's rigged the game. She's triggered a whole network of unconscious judgments and responses in her mind, biasing her to act in a certain manner. This is very interesting to me. It goes on to say, for instance, some students walk into a classroom with no innate respect for whatever teacher they might find there. When they get angry or frustrated, they'll curse at the teacher, ignore him, humiliate him, even punch or throw a chair at him. Other students, on the other hand, do walk into the room with an innate respect for the teacher. They know without thinking about it that they're supposed to defer to him, that there are certain ways you act in front of a teacher and certain ways you don't. They may get angry or annoyed, but they'll express those feelings out of class. It would never occur to them to scream or curse or throw a chair. If someone were to do it in their presence, they would gasp with shock and horror. So that business of what builds in early, it looks like what has to happen is that the perceiving, in order to do the evaluating, has to happen with a certain amount of uh, absence of impulse in the mind. That was the key word. If you perceive and your impulse runs your life, you perceive and you punch. 
if you perceive and you don't have impulse and you, you think, wow, I don't like this at all. I feel like punching this person out, but I'm not doing it because that clear perception of purpose that there's not so much space between the impulse and the doing and uh, that there is more space between the impulse, between the perception, the impulse and the action is this impulse for the good of all beings. Even you know, in the in the in the situation that Helene is thinking about, you know, it's a very big question. So I I, I wouldn't even <coughs> want to tackle it because it brings to mind what's the kind of society where some people have to take from other people because their families are not cared for. If you have a really not a judgmental mind, aha, oh, that's a bad person. You think where is there a mistake? Most people don't like creeping in other people's windows. It's very frightening and, and trying to steal from them. They would rather not do that. They'd rather feed their family and keep them comfortable without doing that. Nobody feels, I, I, not nobody, if people are feeling excited about doing a crime, I think that there's something unusual about their wiring. Most of us don't like to do that. Most of us, I think that we are wired to be collegial animals because we're herd animals. We really have to, on a certain level for evolution, get on well with each other. So I have a couple of things I want to do more today, but that's a great story, isn't it? Who was mindful? The doctor, the rock climber, the thief. So I was thinking about, again, uh, starting to starting this period of time that we're together again, for myself and for you to say, what are we doing here? What are we cultivating? Uh, I'm pretty sure that we have a high level of ethical behavior here. Go ahead. So to, so to follow up this general issue of intention, and you're, you're obviously touching on the other issue, which I felt concerned about, right understanding or wisdom, or on the other side, the avoidance of delusion. Um, So it seems to me that intention is the is the most important, but it's not all. And the thought that comes to mind is that we, so we may be willing to consider that the, in this group, that the thief might have value or even good ideas. Would we consider that for Sarah Palin? <laughs> Notice the laughter. Notice the laughter. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we could take any of the, that question and go the rest of today with that about how the mind reacts to certain stimuli, like the name Sarah Palin or the or the label thief. If we say, how about Robin Hood on his way through the forest met a person, and because the Robin Hood always has a good feeling, Robin Hood stole from people, but we we think about Robin Hood as with. He was stealing not for himself or somebody else. I think the whole thing of what's the context are, I think to myself, in what ways am I held hostage by views? And, and the, the, holding, the holding hostage means I can't think in a new way. A person years and years ago that I met in circumstances way too long to tell about it, but it was traveling in, in some distant place and we became very friends with some people that we saw were traveling in the same places that we were. Got to know them, got to really like them. They were at least a generation older than we. I admired them so much. 
older people who had done their life in such a nice way that I wanted to do my life some way and time in that way. Until he said uh, something about, I was really surprised at, because I worked so hard to get Barry Goldwater elected. Ah, you know, and I had all constructed a whole story that I really liked this person so much. And they mentioned a magic word that, that triggered a, a, a cascade of feelings in my body. And I had to push into my mind the idea that this perfectly nice person who I admired enormously voted differently from I did. You know, so whoa. And I actually think of that as a, a, a pivotal point in my becoming an adult. Other people, admirable people, think differently than I do. And how to have that without the secret thought that I'm right, they're not, they're just nice people who are deluded. But to really have it, I, to really have it, I could be wrong. To really have it, I could be wrong. What? You know, I'm. What? Who did you vote for? You didn't vote for Barry Goldwater. I don't even remember in this moment. Oh, all right. So, <laughs> wherever. I mean, we are no, all. I'm just talking yeah. about. Yeah. You know, you said that you're not necessarily right, right? I'm not necessarily right. I'm not necessarily right. I could be wrong. And often am. And often are. About this, I feel like we are all right, that when we come here, we have come to the right place in terms of talking about what's important. What's important? Gertrude Stein, I just read, said, uh, what the most important thing is, is knowing what's the most important thing. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very Gertrude Stein, say, what? But, but I, what I thought to myself, and what I want to really talk about and end with is, what did I really learn from all these years of practice that has made me different? What do we really teach here? What if people said, why should I come to Spirit Rock? I said it before in terms of here we believe that peace is possible, inner peace that will reflect as peace in the world. But on a personal level, I didn't come here saying, I didn't come where I came 40 years ago saying, I want inner peace. I wanted to be more comfortable in my life. I wanted to be less frightened of life. And I think that the fundamental lesson that I've learned, because my mind is more comfortable in its life, is that life is manageable. You know, that I, I, sometimes I'd say the end of suffering, I'm not there. But life is manageable, and I'm not so frightened by it. It's not as flashy or as sexy a promise. Come to Spirit Rock, you'll find out that life is manageable. But we mostly think it's not. Uh-oh, what if that happened to me? What if this happened to me? When I was young, I certainly thought, what if this happened? What if that happened? But the truth is, if we listen to everybody's sharing, everything happens to everybody. And the big news is that we manage it. We manage it with the, you know, the Beatles would have said, with a little help from my friends. But, you know, really with a little help from my, a lot of help from my friends. From my friends, my colleagues, my family, my community. The people who feel, who know, as I do, that everything passes, that everything is contingent. Things happen because they have contingent causes. They, they don't happen out of the blue. It's a lawful cosmos. Everything is related to everything else. And that the mind that's unable to accept this is the way things are and still have the energy to change what we can change, that's the mind that's, that falls into suffering and that really peace is possible. It's all in that one sentence the mind that's really able to be clear enough to say this is really happening. 
This is what's happening. And have clarity about it. I was going to tell you some stories. I want to pick up the pace. I had three vignettes I was going to tell you because I have something really important to tell you. <laughs> Let's see if I can do this. Da, 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 da. Well, anyway, there are three stories of what, while I was away. I was sitting at a, at a Passover dinner in uh, a, a city in southern France nearest to where I live. It's unusual for me to be away on Passover. But I found the, in the nearest big city there is a Jewish community. They did have a Passover dinner. I did go. Um, my husband and I were seated at a table with eight other people, none of whom we knew. And it turned out that none of them knew each other. I think they had all come from places looking for a Passover dinner. So everyone is talking and everyone is telling their story. And one of the men told a story about, he said, I'm here with my son. I looked up to a man in his 50s, I think, late 40s, early 50s. Now let me just see. He was born, maybe in his 50s, he was born uh, after, you, know, you, always, you always meet people who are middle-aged adults. You say, were you born before or after the war? Uh, especially if they're Jews. Anyway, here's this man who was born, in, and he said, I was born here in Perpignan, but my parents uh, separated and divorced right after I was born, and I was brought up by my grandparents, and I didn't know that they weren't my parents for a long time, and then I understood that they were my grandparents. And uh, then when I was uh, 13, somebody said to me, one of my guys that I played with said, I can't play with you anymore because my family said not to play with you because your father was a Jew. So he went home and said to his grandparents with whom he was living, who were Christian, is that true? And they said, yes, it was true. Your father was. And they left, maybe because of the troubles, but we didn't tell you because it was a, it's a scary thing to, was a scary thing to be at that time. They'd loved him. They'd been very good parents to him. And then he went on to tell a story of how there's years of trying to find his real father. And it's a story of tremendous tribulation. Everybody was hanging on the story. And when he and he finally found the father, and the father was not interested in him after all of that, but he, he but he said, but while I was there, I met a woman and I married her, and we had a child, and that didn't work out, and we divorced. But I have my son, and that's him over there on the other side of the room. And then he sat back and hear all these people listening to the story. So he said, you know, really, it wasn't so bad. And he just finished telling a really terrible story. But he said, it really wasn't so bad. And I thought in terms of minds, you know, when we tell our whole story, it's a form of moving into the present. It's really a form of just inhabiting yourself out loud in the presence of witnesses who are attentive to you. And then it falls into the larger truth. He didn't say it wasn't bad. It was terrible. That was terrible. I was sad. This was all. But really, it wasn't that bad. He said, it wasn't that bad. People have worse. I have my son, and I notice how the mind redeems itself if it relaxes, if it's at home. It finds a way to save itself. When I was in New York two weeks ago, I went to the funeral of a woman in her mid-twenties. It happened quite suddenly and alarmingly and um, tragically. And her two parents who divorced five years ago and have had tremendous acrimony and distance between them since, were both there and 
quite supportive of each other. And the mourning has to happen in somebody's house. And it was in the house of one of them with that person's new partner. And the ex-partner spent the week of mourning together in that house. Everybody kindly taking care of each other. And I realized again another story about people are essentially wise when their minds are stunned into clarity. And God knows we don't want to be stunned into that kind of clarity. We make wise decisions at this point that there's no point. Any of the acrimony, any of the stories, they don't matter. They're insignificant compared to the real story, which this is a tragedy to both of us. So this is what this is what we know. When I, you know, and I was there, and I, it was, you know, God knows I don't want this to happen to anybody that I know or to me, but that we need such a loud mindfulness bell to get this is what's important. Loving each other is what's important. I also went to a baby naming of. A friend of mine's grandson was born, and on the eighth day of his life, he was given his name in a ritual naming ceremony. And nobody knew the name, including my friend, until the announcing, because the parents, being quite uh, traditional in their practice, didn't announce until that ceremony. And to the great surprise of the grandmother, who's my friend, they had named the child for um, a young cousin a contemporary, more or less, of the father, maybe a 10-year-older cousin of the father, who the father said, I admired him so much in my childhood, and I knew from my friend later that this man had had a, a very, very difficult life. He'd been in a lot of trouble, been in trouble with the law. He'd been in trouble with addictions. He died quite young, and they gave him, this new baby, the same name as the deceased cousin, because you name after a deceased relative. Because the father who explained we chose this name said, I really loved my cousin, and I knew that inside of him he was a really good person. And I wanted somebody else, some boy with his same name, because they have the same last name, said I wanted some boy with his same name to have a good life and redeem the name. So I thought to myself, people are so kind, you know. People are so good. What we teach here is that people are kind, people are good. You can calm down in the middle of dismay and overwhelm, and the world is terribly complicated now. You can calm down. So, now is my big, exciting announcement. I'm about to send out this letter to... Um, people who were members of the Thousand Buddhas. How many people were members of the Thousand Buddhas? Great. I have a very good offer for you. We're now having a rerun of the Thousand Buddhas. I'm going to tell you about it right now. I'm going to tell you about it. Dear friends, this is what I'm going to say. Dear Thousand Buddha Sangha member, people who belong to the Thousand Buddha Sangha the 15 years ago pledged... Um, pledged $1,000. You have to know that I come from a family with tremendous socialist uh, uh, visions for the world, that everybody would get together and through communal action would work on each other's behalf and create a new kind of utopian society. My mother particularly, I feel alive in me when I tell about this program 
Because when you do a fundraising, you particularly look for people who are able to give big, big gifts, because we need big, big gifts to do this. But I, at the last fundraising, 15 years ago, I said, that doesn't suit me, because it's, 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 it's out of where, I, it's wonderful, and we have people who know how to do that. What suits me is to say to people, I would like for you to give a gift of $1,000. And I had the vision that if 1,000 people each gave $1,000 over three years, which is less than a dollar a day, actually, $28 a month, at the end of three years, it would amount to a million dollars. And do you know, 1,300 people signed up. $1.3 million went towards building that meditation hall up on top of the hill from $1,000 donations. People said, I can give five. They said, then sign up five people, and they'll have five different Buddhas. One Buddha, $1,000, one vote, one, one name, one vote. I really, I, the, my mother is alive and well. Uh, and so I, I'm not only, some people say I'm hesitant about raising money. I am not, uh, particularly if I raise it in this way, which I think is so sensitive to the fact that so many people can't be enormously generous. But most people can give, I think it comes to 83 cents a day, $28 a month, over three months in a completely painless way. If you sign up on this little piece of paper, which I'm going to give you right away, you, it will come through and, and, and put your, all your data about your credit card or your debit card. Every month for the next 36 months, you'll get a little thing from Spirit Rock that says a debit of $28. And every month when you look through your charges, say, wow, look what I did. And this is the Sangha of thousands of Buddhas because we need more money than we needed last time. So this is what people are going to hear. So this is the letter to these five people and to everybody else. Dear Thousand Buddha Sangha member, I hope this letter finds you very well. Before I tell you the exciting news at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and invite you to become part of our newest initiative, I want to thank you most profoundly and sincerely for your generosity. Really, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your generosity 15 years ago that enabled us to move forward and build the residential campus, the residence halls, the dining hall, the stunning meditation hall, so that so many retreat participants have been able to enjoy them all these years. I know many of you live close by, enough to stay connected through classes and retreats. I wish for you and also for those few supporters who live at great distance. People wrote and said, I'm in jail. I have a very long sentence. I study Buddhism. I've become a Buddhist since I'm in jail. I'm never going to be at Spirit Rock. My brother takes care of my finances. I, I'm signing up, and he'll send you every month the $28. I'll never see it, but I want other people to see it. This is for that person. For those of you who are otherwise unable to be at Spirit Rock, you all experience the great, I hope you experience the great blessing of having co-created a place that's been so helpful to so many people. I remember the day when the meditation hall was almost finished, that a group of teachers visited it together. We looked up at the wonderful vaulted ceiling and out the wide windows and said to each other, wow, do you think we can teach worthy of the splendid setting? I think you'll be glad to know that I think we have. I'm proud of what we teach and how we teach, and I'm proud of you all for enabling us to do it. We are making a difference in the world. And now I am writing to you again as a group 
to be the first people we, you are actually the first, this has not gone out in the mail yet, we invite, oh, Lynn can be giving out these things to everybody. Uh, you, you can be the, uh, you, I am writing to you, to, 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 to be the first people we invite to join us in building again together the completion of the original master plan for Spirit Rock. This is not a new idea, you know. We had, long ago, the county knew that ultimately we would have such and such a capacity. This building, well, I don't know, I'll, I'll tell you what it says here. I didn't say here our original building is falling down at the seams because it's not nice to say that. And the, ta and the trailers out there are completely uninhabitable, but we have half our staff working in them. I think I said it nicely. Uh, I said, we've come to the time when numbers of people who want to practice at Spirit Rock and the numbers of programs that would complete our vision of a full curriculum simply exceed our available space. It's wonderful note to be, that people are eager in increasing numbers to be at Spirit Rock, and it's dismaying not to be able to accommodate them all. What's more, our original buildings in the lower campus, the community hall, and the office trailers have long outlived their shelf lives and badly need to be replaced. It's beyond the scope of this letter for me to describe all the beautiful plans, all approved by the Planning Department of Marin. But to begin, just imagine that the new community hall will have rooms for small group classes, rooms for teachers to meet with individual students to talk about their practice, all in addition to a beautiful, spacious meditation hall for community classes. And imagine how all the new building will fit visually into the natural landscape and be built with great attention to ecological issues. We will all, I'm sure, feel wonderful and proud to have renewed Spirit Rock as our spiritual home. The project is expensive, but half of the fundraising has already happened, and we are fortunate to have received some very substantial gifts. I am writing to you because I hope indeed, because I'm very much counting on, your willingness to be the Sangha of thousands of Buddhas, the community of people who each pledge a gift of $1,000 to be paid over three years. I hope you'll want to join us again in this effort. I'm passionate about us all being equal partners in this initiative. On Sunday, August 7th, there will be a celebration in the Upper Hall at Spirit Rock Meditation Center from 4 to 7 p.m. that we think of as the inaugural presentation of the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. In fact, we are thinking of it as celebrating the birth date of this program, as well as the birthdays of Jack Cornfield and myself, which both just happened before that date. Jack and I will teach Dharma together, which we both think of as the most pleasurable entertainment. And Jack will narrate a slide and video presentation of the new plans. We have a scroll, we will have a scroll, for people to sign if they're ready to make their pledges as a form of ritual establishment of this project. And we'll have lemonade and treats from our kitchen to make it a real birthday party. Space is limited. So if you can come, please let us know right away. And please let us know right away if you're ready to join with gratitude and great hopefulness. I really mean it. I really, really. Yesterday morning, I had breakfast with a friend and I told her about it, and she got all excited, and she said, I'll join. So I said, great, you could be the first person. You know, I, I said on that scroll, imagine, Jack's name is going to be the first one, and my name is going to be the second one. It seems like good protocol to do it that way. <laughs> Although maybe we'll reverse it. It was my idea. So we'll see. Uh, but, and then we'll have, but then everybody else's name is going to be, and the, and the staff, and the... Uh, all the staff will join, I think. All the teachers have definitely signed on. All the board will do it. 
uh, I hope all of you will do it. So I was having breakfast with a friend of mine yesterday. She said, I'll do it. I'll be the first person that you told about it. So I said, uh, okay, so tell me your address. I'll write it down so you're already signed up. She said, no, I'll give you my check. I said, for the first month? She said, no, here's a check for the whole thing. So I won't have to have monthly statements. Here it is. So I have a check in my purse. I have to take it to somebody. We're not even tooled up. These tool-up forms happened last night. I was, you know, they, they, we read on these forms yesterday. They happened last night. We don't have a form yet. I have a $1,000 check. So this is what I, I'd love it if you sign up. What's the goal of the whole project? The goal of the whole project is to get built. I'll tell you what's going to get built. We have to, we have to raise 13, I think, $13 million, $13 million. Six and a half is already raised. We have ideas for where much of the end of it is coming. And I have a bigger number than 1,000, but not an hysterically wild vision of how many people there are. I'm going to go around, I'm going to talk to everybody's sitting group in the Bay Area. If you want to invite 20 people to your living room, I'll come to your living room and teach a Dharma class. If they'll sign up, honestly, I have consecrated the next three months to this, ta four months to this task of go around and talk to every group of people and say, this is an investment for your children, for the future, for Marin County. When it gets built out, what it's going to have is a replaced community hall. So uh, in, in the style of that hall up there, it's going to be over there on the other side of the meadow with classrooms, with meeting rooms, with different things going on, with rooms for teachers to have individual interviews. with We have no room to interview people. If someone says, I have a Dharma question, can I talk to you for 15 minutes? There isn't a single place in this whole place where you can sit down. Uh, well, it will be tooled up to do that. The people who are operating in really terrible circumstances in these um, trailers will get new offices. The main thing, though, is we'll have a new whole complex of this. There'll be really a whole sense of a lower campus that's complete with meeting halls, with possibilities of doing more training programs down here. It's really, really exciting. Would you like to see a slideshow of this whole thing? I could arrange that for next week for the last... 10 minutes or people stay late at the end of the time. How many people would stay late to see a slideshow? How many people would stay? That's good because then if it happens in the last 10 minutes, you don't even have to stay late. I'll work it out with somebody. Uh, huh? Do it in the last 10 minutes? Yeah. Uh, here's Walt. Can we do a slideshow next week, Walt? Yeah, so done. Okay. Slideshow. And is that the one that's going to be on the 7th? Is that the one? It'll be a one. Okay. Of course, it won't be the incomparable Jack narrating. So. It'll be the incomparable, incomparable Sylvia. It'll be the incomparable <laughs> Sylvia. I, I actually hope you come to the birthday party with the incomparable Jack and Sylvia because we've been celebrating our birthdays together all these years. The 7th of August. But to come, you have to sign up. So sign up. And then you, you get to be on the guest list. 300 people can come. So anybody wants to come and give me their pledge form right now, I'll be happy to have it. If you're obligated to go home and talk it over with somebody, uh, which might be wise in some circumstances, you can bring it back next week. But thank you very much. Are you excited about this? Yes. I'm thrilled. 
who here thinks that uh, they know a group of people that they can get 20 people in a room and I'll go teach Dharma and tell them? Who thinks? There you go. I see one person back there thinks. There's another people. Lynn's going to do it. I, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, before we started the Sangha for a, of a Thousand Buddhas, I was such a foot-dragging um, fundraiser because I, I felt funny about saying, you know, I'd like you to... I just felt funny about it. And I had such a complete change of heart on two levels. First change of heart came because I realized that I totally, totally, totally believe that this project that we're doing is incomparable in the world and that we have to do it. That's not hubris. There is no meditation center, I know, that's as up and running with as inclusive an audience where we are the Theravada tradition, but it's totally not parochial. People can come here with or without another religious practice. This is the only place in the world that I know that. Not to speak of it's beautiful. Not to speak of our teachers are mostly psychologically, modernly up to speed. We do wonderful teachings here and marvelous programs. I don't know another one in the world, so I think it ought to last. So number one, I think it's a great thing. So, and I support it. So, uh, so I feel passionate about that. So I don't feel funny about saying, I'd like you to make a gift. Here's an opportunity to support. I'm telling you, an opportunity to do something fabulous that you'll feel good about. So I'm spreading the word. The second reason is because of my mother, wherever she is, would be so proud of thousands of people being equal partners. That was her idea of the utopia of the world that she was waiting to see. So that's it. Thousands of people, equal partners in a project. And that's what I want you to be with me. I have already signed on. So... So, ta-da, that, and behind that, this is Marianne, by the way, who's our program weaver, uh, Marianne Clark. This is Walt, who does uh, a lot of the mail that you get in the websites and the notices of what's happening. And who makes everything so beautiful. Makes beautiful. everything beautiful. Soon to be more beautiful with more websites and more interactive. We're going to have interactive website uh, coverage, like stay tuned for the Olympics. Stay tuned for the interactive website coverage of the Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas. And we'll do teachings online. So terrific. You can sign now and give me the paper or I sound like KPFA. <laughs> I can't believe it. But they're also a good outfit. <laughs> we'll give you a present. We will give you a present, by the way. We'll send you a little pill, a pin for the lapel. You know how political uh, politicians wear a little pin in the lapel. We decided that yesterday. So that's so hot off the press, we don't have the pins yet. But, but if you sign up, you get to come to the party. Anyway, did I not say anything, Walt? That you didn't say that this development is going to be one of the models for ecologically Clean oh, building. absolutely. I said that in my one-line revision that I didn't read to you. Absolutely. I said it was going to be ecologically attentive, but really that we are stewarding this land. I left out the lesson, the sentence that says, we feel ourselves seriously to be stewards of both this land, this place, and of these teachings for this generation and generations to come. We do. So you become one of them. By joining, yeah. 
it's Sherwood Engineering that is in charge of the ecological engineering aspects of yeah. it. And my son is the one who's in charge of that. Ta-da! <laughs> That's great. <laughs> totally That's totally coincidental, but now your son and my mother are both in this room. <laughs> Who else has a question? Otherwise, next week, slideshow the net last end of it because you'll see how great it's going to be. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.